Hello and welcome along to this latest episode of ED's Susty Talks, our short but sweet audio episodes where we interview sustainability leaders from across the globe to keep us all a bit more informed and connected, even if we're pressed for time. If you're new here, I'm Edie's Deputy Editor, Sarah George, and it's great to have you tuning in to Susty Talks. Um, and our episode today, I'm delighted to have on call with me Matthew Gray, who is co-founder and chief executive at Transition Zero. So thank you so much for your time, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. No, very timely to come on, and that will become clear, I think. Um, for those of you who are listening and aren't familiar with Transition Zero, I thought we could start, Matthew, with a, a brief introduction to the organisation and maybe some of its origin story as well. What motivated you to set up Transition Zero? Yeah, sure. So Transition Zero is a mission-driven company established in 2021 to provide energy systems modelling as a service. For those listeners who do not know what energy systems modelling is, it is a tool to understand and plan the future of energy. So, for instance, when a government wants to understand the cost of a policy or when an investor wants to understand where to put a wind or solar farm or when a corporation wants to understand how to meet its net zero targets, they tend to all use energy systems modelling as a basis to inform their decisions. Um, Traditional approaches to energy systems modelling have relied on closed data, making it difficult for all stakeholders, such as energy consumers and taxpayers, to engage productively in the conversation. And that is part of the basis why we started Transition Zero, is I was an analyst at the time and I always wanted to um, work with energy systems modelling, but I wasn't a coder. Um, so I was always frustrated knowing the power of these tools, but not being able to interact with them in a way that really satisfied my intellectual curiosity. So our approach at, at Transition Zero is different. We build models based on open, accessible and auditable data. And this, we hope, will support our mission, which is to establish a data standard for energy transition planning and to, to help make clean energy affordable and dependable for all. Well, super, super interesting mission. And I feel like intellectual curiosity is something that I say a lot about myself as a journalist. And really what I mean is just that I'm nosy um, and I want more information. Um so speaking about energy systems modelling and open data, and you've talked about how we're in a world where that isn't really used to the extent that it could be, there's still much more opportunity to be unlocked. Um, without that available at scale, are investors properly assessing the risks of developing fossil fuels, whether domestically or, or internationally? I think the, the short answer to that is yes, but the, the devil was in the detail. So it really depends on how you define risk and how stranded asset risk is going to materialise and who's going to feel the impacts of that stranded asset risk. So, for example, are investors making a false assumption about a coal plant operating for its useful life of 40 years? I think the, the obvious answer to that is yes, they are. I think what investors are probably betting on at the moment is that they will be able to get out of their investment by the time that stranded assets occur or that they will not um, be negatively affected by asset stranding risk. And what I mean by that, and just 
staying with the example of coal-fired power plants, is most coal-fired power plants, particularly in the global south, are financed by power purchase agreements, and these are long-term contracts between um, investors and typically a government or a state-owned enterprise, which is trying to get the coal-fired power plant built. Um, and the terms of those contracts normally put all the risk on the governments or the state-owned enterprises. Therefore, if that coal plant um, is shut down prematurely because of uh, climate change, whether it be transition risk, legal risk, or physical risk, investors will not um, be negatively impacted by that. So the government will still be required to, to pay out and meet the terms of that contract. So in the in the context of risk, I think what investors are betting on really is, is counterparty risk rather than climate risk. And that's where I think they are making a risky bet that their counterparties will stay solvent and be able to meet the terms of these contracts. That makes sense. It's like has been said by people like Nigel Topping that the energy markets are moving quicker than sometimes the systems are prepared for. So people are still expecting a coal plant to be open for as long as it would be if it was open 50 years ago. Um, so, so that makes sense. Um, so how exactly does Transition Zero engage with investors about having a just energy transition and about better managing that, that risk? What can be done with the modelling and the data? Yeah, sure. So what we try to do at Transition Zero is we use energy systems models, which are big, complex models, which try and forecast or understand the electricity and energy system into the future. Um, and what we're trying to get at uh, is trying to understand uh, what a climate policy or what a regulatory landscape will cost a government and what the trade-offs are around energy security, um, jobs and matters of, of that nature. Um, with regards to governments in Asia, which is, is our focus, they're principally interested in, in two variables, and that is cheap energy and energy security. Um, and what our models typically show is that there is um, no trade-off between cheap electricity and electricity that is also more energy secure. And the reason for that is... Um, Renewable energy t is typically built um, within the country and doesn't have the supply chain complexities of coal and gas, which um, tends to, to be imported in the country. There are ex exceptions, of course, with countries who um, have fossil fuel reserves, which is a, a different matter. And I think on top of that, um, renewable energy also tends to create more jobs, which is also beneficial for governments. But yeah, just to recap, governments in, in Asia are principally interested in cheap energy because cheap energy they associate with economic competitiveness. And if they have economic competitiveness, they will be able to um, prioritise their, their, their development uh, concerns, which is, which is all around um, making sure um, the economy grows and that um, the the rate of or the the economic well-being um, increases as well. That makes sense. And as you mentioned, the old model of the economic well-being is dependent on coal 
just isn't stacking up anymore. It's a bit of an outdated bit of data. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. And we've talked there about data transparency and modeling, um, but we know that there are other barriers to scaling more impactful flows to renewable energy. This was something that was really mentioned at the last COP and that we're looking to um, ahead of the next COP as well. So what other major challenges are you are you seeing? So the two biggest barriers are the cost of capital and the conditions associated with climate finance. So we are currently in a high interest rate environment, which means lending is more challenging, particularly for those countries in the global south where the cost of borrowing is substantially higher anyway. So, for example, in Germany, the cost of capital for renewable energy is typically around a couple of percent, whereas in places like India, it can be anywhere between 10 and 15 percent. And with regards to climate finance, most of the finance to to date, if it does come at all, is in the form of loans rather than grants, which tends to make the situation worse because a number of these countries just really aren't in a position to borrow more um, to the extent that if they do borrow more, it could potentially affect their credit rating, which would be disastrous for their ability to um remain competitive. Um, And I think to solve these problems, uh, there needs to be a a fundamental rethink. And I think, you know, initiatives such such as the the Bridgetown agenda, for example, is is a step in the right direction. Yeah, we've definitely been seeing that. It's a time where we need more finance flows, but it's even more expensive to get those flows. So a real crunch point. And Matt, we've talked extensively about what's going on with finance in Asia and with international finance flows. Um, But we're talking during a week where a lot has been said about financial flows to fossil fuels versus renewables um, in the UK. Um, And also earlier this summer, the Climate Change Committee's progress report to the UK Parliament um, essentially concluded that there aren't credible policy plans in place to speed up the decarbonisation of power and heavy industries. And speeding that transition is why Transition Zero exists. Um, so what would you say can be done to to turn that around? Absolutely. So I think fundamentally the only way to change the situation in the UK is through regulatory reform which, of course, will require political will, which I think at the moment is being questioned in the UK. But just to to jump into specifics, so regarding the power sector, I think reforms are needed so transmission gets built and the grid operators are incentivised to move at a pace required. I don't think they currently are incentivised to move. Indeed, they have a a number of incentives to Um, maintain the status quo, which is unhelpful. Um, But failure failure to do so will mean that the transition away from gas, which is the next challenge for power sector decarbonisation in the UK, will effectively cost more. Um, Regarding industry, and in particular heavy industry subsectors like cemented steel, the government really needs to create demand signals for green or carbon-free production. And the easiest way to do this is for the government itself, when it spends money on infrastructure, is to mandate the procurement of green or uh, low-carbon steel and cement. 
And I think this would incentivize producers and also de-risk and create a market for private sector consumers as well. So car companies um, would then see a market for green steel and then could follow in the government's um, lead by incentivizing or mandating that um, steel producers, the producers that they rely on, um, provide them with green steel as well. But I think at the moment it's very much a, a chicken and egg situation, but the government um, has an obvious role to play there. And I think a lot of people have talked about, as you say, poor mix of incentives, just sending the wrong signal and making it more expensive to do the right thing. But where could data and energy systems modelling come into this? How could that help the government look at what's the right mix of security and cheapness and climate transition? Yeah, absolutely. So our models at Transition Zero are trying to create a digital twin of the electricity system whereby we can understand in a good level of detail where the most cost effective what the most cost effective system looks like and where the infrastructure needs to be built for that system to be realized so we can plan out where transmission can be built where offshore farms are best suited to be located and to understand what the supply and demand variables are on a very granular basis to understand to make sure that that um, variable wind and solar matches um, demand, which is the biggest challenge as we move from a system predominantly supplied by gas and coal to a system predominantly supplied by wind and solar. Yeah, I think that's important to mention. We've talked a lot about generation, but as you mentioned, the rest of the infrastructure, including storage and flexibility, is super important as well. Absolutely. Got it. Well, Matthew, I think we've covered so much ground about the energy transition and the data and the modelling underpinning that in the past 20 minutes or so. So I've really enjoyed this episode of Susty Talk, but I know we're running out of time. So thank you very much for joining me for this episode. Thanks, Sarah.